Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Esther Dyson. Esther is an investor, a journalist, an author, a philanthropist. She's also the executive founder of Wellville, which is a nonprofit focused on improving equitable well-being. Esther, welcome to World of DAS. Great to be here. A lot of people look to government to fix like the healthcare system. What can like the tech industry do to revolutionize the system faster? The problem we've got isn't the healthcare system. It's the need for healthcare. So much of what the healthcare system does is deal with basically the damage done by maternal problems, by bad education, by poverty, by racism, by bad water in Flint, by bad food. People's metabolism often is self-destructive. They eat too much sugar, and but the metabolism of the food system also helps destroy people because they make more money by selling bad food than by selling good food, basically. Why should Walmart do the right thing if Amazon won't or Whole Foods? So it's this competitive race to sell people stuff that's bad for them. And now you've got, in a different context, you've got Facebook, you've got Robinhood, social media, addiction, gambling. It's a tough world. And precisely because we've got this abundance, we're actually harming ourselves because we're being manipulated by market forces. And do you think that is more true in the U.S.? Or do you think that's a very true statement globally? It's probably true more in the U.S., but certainly you're seeing huge levels of diabetes in Saudi Arabia, all over the world, everywhere that our food companies go, these problems follow. And everywhere our social media go, these problems follow. We become so successful at satisfying our short-term desires that they are starting to conflict with our long-term desires, which are purpose. And is there a way to change the system without a lot of regulation, which could have unintended consequences? Are there certain nudges that we could do that could significantly change things? The biggest thing we could do is educate people well enough so that they could manipulate themselves instead of be manipulated. Which is hard when you have a whole AI trying to manipulate you. It's hard to fight back against it, I imagine. It is. Can we do this? I don't know. It's definitely worth trying and it's worth talking about how it should work. But yes, there are lots of barriers, including a world that runs more on economics and less on culture than it used to, a world that is now very much divided around cultural issues. Anything the government does often is regulation rather than as governance. Whenever you have a bunch of people together, you need rules to help govern their behavior because if you don't, people will take advantage. And the problem is it's easier to do that in a small community and feel things are fair. As the communities get larger, it gets more and more divisive. If you were trying to get people to be healthier, you're basically saying, let's not start with the healthcare system. It's too late once they're there. Let's start with just how they are from when they're kids to exercise, to food, to their addiction to social media, to all the other types of things. Fixing the healthcare system seems like a super hard problem, but what you're describing seems like even a harder thing to fix. It would start with mandatory parent training, which of course is completely unrealistic. (laughs) So I think the role of the government is less regulation. I mean, certainly there's some regulation involved, but it's more a notion of taxation and subsidization rather than so many regulations that the system becomes either encrusted or brittle. 
we need to pay care workers more, especially child care workers, doulas, everybody. And this is the exciting thing. As we have more AI doing simple tasks, the tasks of raising children, of encouraging people to learn rather than just trying to pour knowledge into their heads, the tasks of motivating young people, the tasks of caring for older people, those should be paid more and they should be subsidized by society because they provide value to society. At the same time, we should tax carbon, tax sugar, tax a bunch of these things. Again, but let the economics flow more freely rather than tying everything up in very detailed regulations that are always five or 10 years behind the times. The CDC's diabetes protocol, for example, is way too focused on fat rather than sugar. It takes time to catch up. Why does it take so much to catch up? If you think of the fat versus sugar debate, that seems like people came around 20 years ago on that. Why does it take so long for certain government organizations to move on those things? Friction. It takes time for businesses to adopt things that clearly make sense as well. The larger an organization, the harder it is for it to change its ways. It's inertia. I went on Medicare five years ago from Oscar to Medicare. And in June, I got an email from Oscar saying that they had resolved a certain billing question. <laughs> yeah, things are just slow. We want friction in terms of human behavior. We want friction in terms of guardrails, but we don't want an excess of detailed regulations versus principles and taxes and you know, the fewer loopholes, the fewer exceptions, the simpler. This is a data podcast, and obviously there's a lot of data in the world of medical and even just knowing like what you should eat. There's still a lot of unclear things about, and maybe for different people, it might be very, very different and stuff. There might be some broad ideas like eat more vegetables, but how do you think we can better use data to make the world healthier? One of the most exciting things that's happening is we're getting enough data and enough AI capacity and clouds and everything that we can start looking at counterfactuals. It's like sins of omission, sins of commission, the risks of certain drugs. And oh my God, somebody might have a heart attack. Well, yes, but millions of people have heart attacks every day. My favorite scary fact is, did you know that everybody who is vaccinated eventually dies? <laughs> yes, but so does everybody who's not vaccinated. But the ability to go in and look and see not just the risks of doing something, but the risks of not doing something. I can walk into a grade school and say 30% of these kids are going to be overweight. 20% of them are going to be addicted to something. Why is this something we can do better today? It seems like we could also do that in the 50s. Is it just we have better data collection today or better data analysis today? Again, it's easy to make the predictions. It's harder to make the predictions after the fact, what would have happened if you hadn't done X? Because you need to have fairly airtight counterfactuals to pay. There are often natural experiments like one state does something different than the other, one country does something different than the other. We can study those things. Yes. And in every case, well, that's true. But in this state, they had grass-fed beef. Or they're richer or you know, whatever it might be. The place you go for this is people in the advertising business because they do this thing called attribution. What was it that made this lady buy the red sweater? Was it her friend was wearing it? Was it she had two friends on Facebook who talked about it? Was it the billboard she saw driving down the street? I used to work in the advertising business, and most people think attribution doesn't work at all. Maybe 10% true or 20% true or something. I mean, this is the point. It's getting better to pick out 
what was the same? What was different? Can we create semi-hypothetical populations and look at what would have happened with this intervention and without it? Can we make duplicates of people to analyze, was it the impact of these two factors together? It's not, oh, blockchain solves everything. We have better data. We have more ability to comb through it. We have more ability to create hypotheses. If you have only four factors, you're going to miss a lot. If you have 50 factors as a human being, you can't pick them apart. But with AI, you can. You can say, oh, the people who lived on this road next to the polluting farm are the ones that had more cancer. It's not easy or cut and dried. And it depends on more data because there are a lot of confounding factors that you won't think about, including what the weather was when you took a particular medical test if the air pressure was low and the humidity was high, it can mess with certain kinds of recorded data. And that depends on the day and it also depends on where you live. Now, obviously, if we start joining all these data sets together, we could get some deep learning. If we join your medical data with your grocery spend data, with you know how often you go to the gym, with your location data, with your credit card data, maybe even with your tax returns or whatever, we could start to get like really deep, interesting insights of society. But on the other side, it starts to have a lot of privacy concerns around that. And on the aggregate, it might be very good for society. But on the individual level, people start to get concerned about that. How do you think society should be thinking about those trade-offs? And, and obviously, different societies might think about those trade-offs in a different way. Well, the first is, it's not what data they have. It's how they can use it. Does law enforcement get hold of it? What you will find is people who are sick in particular are usually... Like, please take my data. I'm dying, but if you can help other people, God bless you. And people do vary in their sensitivity and their trust. And clearly a government that's perceived to be out of control, which whether wrongly or not, is not as trusted. What we need in a sense, lots of things, but one is a much better informed consent process. Again, it goes back to education. If people understood both what happened to their data and what anonymization meant and the fact that anonymization is never perfect. People kind of conflate privacy and security and am I going to be charged more for my insurance if they know? Irony here is we're getting to the point where health insurance isn't really insurance because we understand the risks so well and it's forcibly priced to ignore those risks in many cases, which means the insurance companies aren't incentivized to make you healthier. And it it goes back to a single payer system where you can incentivize people to be healthier. Not sure it's effective to pay people to eat right, but it certainly is effective to make healthier food cheaper. When you think about data, there's a feedback loop that happens. If we go back to the advertising, if we put text in red versus blue, we can test the difference and see the clicks and see the engagement on that different color difference and stuff. When we think about health and healthy lifestyles and stuff like that, it's very hard to measure because the outcomes could take 50 years hence from the time you start measuring it. Obviously, in certain cases like stage four cancer or something like that, we have a shorter time frame to measure and we could say, you know, maybe two years from now or something. But in most cases, what are the intermediate steps we can measure if we're on the right path? The thing that most influences people's behavior is the behavior yeah. of other people around them. So again, you go back to childcare by people who are trained and probably paid to have good habits. You feed the kids healthy food. You train mothers that 
apple juice in a bottle is going to rot your kid's teeth and destroy their metabolism. Sorry, but that's the truth and you just shouldn't do it. So we're doing a really interesting thing in Wellville with some kids from Boys and Girls Club. Boys and Girls Club serves underserved kids with after-school programs primarily all around the U.S. And this is just one group in Muskegon. We're going to give them aura rings to monitor their sleep and to see the impact of both their behavior and their environment and their food. So you you ate a bunch of donuts right before you went to sleep. And how did that affect you versus, you know, some other thing? Okay. Or you came home and your dad had an argument with your mom or you were in school and you did a book report and everybody clapped versus you forgot your book report or you stayed up late on Facebook or your neighborhood was really noisy last night. Then you can also see, well, I went to bed early yesterday and now I feel better today. And my sleep score went up. What we don't want to do, honestly, is tell the kids they need to sleep more. We want them to see that they have the power to change their own behavior and to see the impact of it rather than, you got to do this. Yes, the don't do drugs does not always work. People have to come to that finding by themselves. The best way not to do drugs is to have something better to do, like playing basketball with the police in a summer program, which is another thing they do in Muskegon. This is a year-long class, and it's going to include the food supply. And again, how the food supply is driven by its financial metabolism, just the way you're driven by your sugar metabolism and satiety and so forth. We want, again, to tell the kids, you can decide what you want to do, but looking at your data can help you decide, and it can help you see the impact of what you do. And then, yes, we will talk about the long-term impact of good sleep or bad sleep and all these other things, but it's an education, not an exhortation. And we are actually doing it as a formal study, and we want to show the impact not on the kid's weight or their kid's sleep, though that will also be recorded, but on their sense of agency, which is a, a formal scale, just like the adverse childhood experiences is a formal scale, and see whether learning this stuff and Math is a lot easier to learn when it's about baseball statistics or when it's about you than when it's in a textbook. We're just at the beginning of this, but we have a great teacher who's going to excite the kids and talk to them and listen to them rather than just read from a book. People are so different and different stimuli affect each of us in a very, very different way, whether it be food or sleep or stress or et cetera. And in some cases, the same stimuli might be positive for some people and negative for some other people or people react differently to it. You can make something for the average, but it's hard to have like one size for society, even for a small community. No, that's right. And that's the whole point. It's your data and you react differently. Jim lives next door to you. He heard the same noises. But for Jim, it was nothing. And for me, it kept me awake all night. And that's a reality. And we want to recognize that because you're absolutely right. That's why you don't want to read a book that says loud noises disturb your sleep. (laughs) In college, I lived across from a fire station. And after like the third night, I never noticed. (laughs) So that's exactly the point. Even though everybody's different, they do have their own data. And they can figure out for themselves what they can do to change their data if they want to, or to see the impact of what's happening to them. And But this is precisely the point. A mirror is always more fascinating than a painting. Speaking of personalized, I know that you were involved with 23andMe from the very beginning, 
and they really pioneer kind of access to genetic data. And by the way, just a quick note, I'm a 23andMe shareholder, but where do you think the future of genetic data is going? So people really misunderstand genetic data. Your genome doesn't really change. Your epigenetics do, and certainly everything else does. The genome is kind of like the blueprint, but then it changes. Everything that you do with it changes over time, even though until you start doing genetic engineering, your genome stays the same. The impact of those genes and how they interact and whether they're mescalated and all that makes a huge difference. So from 23andMe's point of view, they're working with pharma and they just acquired, I can't remember the name, but- Lemonade. Lemonade, right. The company that delivers healthcare based on some genetic specifics. What's really interesting is there was this notion back in the Middle Ages, if, if you looked in a mirror or imagine looking in a Zoom, people didn't have mirrors a lot. They thought the devil was there behind you if you actually looked in a mirror or if you looked down in a pond and you saw your face, there was a devil. It was kind of creepy. It was kind of like hidden knowledge because people weren't supposed to see themselves. They saw other people, but to see yourself is sort of an event. Yeah, certainly when my dog sees herself, she kind of freaks out a bit. Yeah, and so people react into the genome in the same way. What they don't really understand is, yes, it identifies you uniquely, but it tells a very abbreviated story. I like to say, you are a Russian novel. That's to me, you don't read Russian. <laughs> and your genome is like a Russian Cliss notes, and we have only a very limited glossary. You know, we can see these words in there. We can see there's a discussion about the liver. We can see something about brain cells or bones, but the verbs aren't very clear. So it's like looking at something with a very limited glossary. Over time, we're getting to know more and we're doing much broader studies and beginning to do all these polygenetic scores because all these genes interact and create different kinds of proteins that have different behaviors as they interact. But I remember long ago trying to get health insurance from Aetna and I offered to send them my genome and they said, God, no, please, no. <laughs> They'd much rather know, do you smoke? How much you weigh? What's your blood pressure? I mean, we're certainly learning a ton more about how all these things work, but genetics is only a part of it. It's going to be an increasingly interesting part, but Genes are about risk at this point. They're not a diagnosis. If nine out of 10 people with this genome have X or do X, there's still one that doesn't. And what is it that makes that one not have it or not do it? It's probably not totally random. There's probably something that we don't know about, but it may well be that when they were two years old, they were exposed to something. I dropped some toner on my carpet last week. What the hell the impact of that is going to be? <laughs> I mean, I love it and it's fascinating but it's certainly not telling us everything. The more we learn, the more genetics will be part of it. But we're also learning about protein folding and all the interactions of all the different chemicals. And then there's our entire microbiome, which is not part of our genome. It has its own genome that interacts and affects our mood and our sleep and our metabolism. It's an interesting question when we talk about reviving ancient animals even if we get their genes, if we don't get their microbiome, we might get a very different kind of animal. Different kind of woolly mammoth or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it won't be a pigeon. You know, you mentioned genetic engineering. People fall on different sides of it and it's very nuanced. And in some ways you could eliminate debilitating diseases from genetic engineering. But in other cases, there's this idea of CRISPR babies that are somewhat designer babies or something like that. 
or even engineering someone who's 50 years old and relatively healthy, but they want to somehow change certain outcomes. Where do you think, is there a hard line we should be drawing? Should we be just slowly experimenting a little bit? Where do you think we should be thinking about this? There's no way we should draw a hard line because we will inevitably draw it in the wrong place. It's very complicated, like all this stuff. Designer babies kind of give me the creeps, but I'm more concerned just with unintended consequences. You fix this particular problem that you create another one. And evolution has done a lot of experiments along the way. Mostly the things that don't work die off, but there are lots of evolutionary things that as I understand it, for example, if teenage girls are under stress or preteen, they start to menstruate early. And that makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, because if they're going to reproduce at all, they better do it fast because they'll probably die by the time they're 20. And so there are these weird things that happen. Why do we get depressed? Well, some of it is genetic and some of it is reaction to toxic circumstances. If you never get depressed, Maybe you also never get happy. Bipolar is too much in both directions. And then there's anhedonic, no emotion whatsoever. So do it carefully. You know, there's lots of great science fiction that someday won't be fiction about clones. I'd love to write a novel about somebody who had their clone as a baby. And there are mothers who live through their children. But imagine in your clone, you would try to make them not do all the stupid things you did and they would go do other stupid things you didn't do. <laughs> that would be a good novel. Yeah. yeah. And it may well end up being a reality. It's really hard to predict and to set ethical rules for something 200 years from now, because there will be so many different possibilities. I think AI is very, very different from human intelligence. I don't think we're going to have robot overlords anytime soon, but if we did, and if they were better than us, God bless them. I'm not sure that humans are the best thing that happened to the earth. For my own children, I would certainly not wish for them to be severely unhappy. But when you think of some of the people that most impacted the world, whether it be like Vincent Van Gogh or Ernest Hemingway, or you just go down the list. These are people who were severely unhappy and struggled with deep, deep depression. And maybe it was terrible for them, but it ended up being very good for the world. And so how do you think we should think about those? I certainly wouldn't want to do that trade-off for my kids, but maybe I'm okay with someone else doing the trade-off to help the world in some way. The good thing is we don't know. The challenge for some of these people is they also cause a lot of happiness for those around them. Like the net happiness probably went up or something, yeah. Take something as simple as when I was young, I thought, should I have a nose job? Lots of people were having nose jobs. And I kind of thought, well, I've got this nose. If I do a nose job and my nose isn't perfect, then it's my fault. Now blame it on their genes or something. <laughs> Choice implies the possibility of regret for having done something. If you design your kid and then your kid is not flawless, it's your fault. Ah, interesting. There's a lot of downsides to playing God, however you define that. What you're basically saying, if you have too much agency over nature, too much agency over society, then it will never go perfectly. So you will start to blame yourself for some of the, the imperfectness. You should blame yourself. That's part of the problem. But it's really important to understand these risks. At the same time, it's important not to be frozen in place because there are things we can fix. We do need to experiment. We need to experiment with a good ethics review board, et cetera, et cetera. Take the vaccines right now. You know, there's a lot of issues 
where people don't understand statistics well enough to realize that, yes, a vaccine has side effects. And there may even be some more unpleasant ones. But not having a vaccine, again, this is the counterfactual, has much worse actual consequences, which is millions of people get sick and die. We need to have some kind of liability regime that's better at understanding, again, the counterfactuals. It may be that we should have gone faster. In this case, I think we went pretty much as fast as we could. But the trade-offs for various kinds of medical interventions, we need to go faster than 17 years. We need post-market surveillance. We need to think more carefully about understanding those trade-offs between the treatment, the negative side effects of the treatment, and the lack of treatment. You mentioned statistics. My experience with super smart people is it's the main kind of core knowledge that most super smart people know the least. So it's not just like the average person, but you're talking someone who went to Harvard or something like that. They tend to know statistics less than basically every other major type of knowledge base that's out there. Why is that? Why is statistics so low down on the totem pole where they'll know everything about biology or history or something, but they just don't know anything about statistics? Well, read Danny Kahneman, The Availability Bias. Well, I know somebody who did X and got COVID, and you tend to generalize. There's just things that are scary you tend to remember. You remember airplane crashes. What good old Stalin said, one man dead is a tragedy, a million dead is a statistic. Yeah. And so I'm actually an investor in a company called Proofpilot. It's closer to post-market surveillance in many cases than RCTs, because especially when you get into things that foster health rather than a specific drug, you don't want to just have this protocol. You need to meditate three times a day. Let's have some people meditate four times a day and let's have other people meditate two times a day and let's see what what works best, including making the trade-off of how much time it takes to meditate. Those kinds of things we need to get better at looking at the behaviors and the outcomes and understanding not just what happens during a formal trial, but what happens out in the real world. A drug that's too expensive so that people tend not to take it regularly is simply not going to be effective, even if it's a very effective drug. In the prior life, you were the founding chair of ICANN, the, the internet corporation for assigned names and numbers, kind of the original data services company, like it really kind of managed all the domain names and everything. If you go back to the founding, give us a sense of what do you think ICANN did right and what do you think should have been done differently? So it was basically an immaculate conception. I mean, it was kind of like the founding part of the internet in a way. Immaculate conception in the sense that it claimed to have no parents. It was the internet coming together to create this regulatory body that was blessed by St. John Postel, who unfortunately died of complications from heart surgery just as ICANN was being formed, I think, in the fall of 1998. But it was basically the EU and Iron Magaziner in the US together, and Japan was invited in so that it wouldn't look like the EU and the US alone. And there was a lot of dissension. The business community said, this thing is working fine, leave it alone. We don't want no stinking government regulation. The US said, we developed the internet. We don't want no stinking foreigners running the internet. Stinking foreigners said, this doesn't belong to the US. It's a worldwide opportunity. And meanwhile, our real job was to break up the monopoly that was running the registry of addresses, .com, .net, .gov, and I think .org. And that was a real fight. The company eventually got bought, but we had a limited budget and 
we were breaking up this monopoly. We managed to do that. And we put in this regulatory regime, but it pretty quickly got co-opted, fortunately, not by governments, but by the business community. I'd rather be co-opted by business, which just wants my money, rather than by governments, which want my voice or to silent my voice. But it's a really sleazy, unregulated market. There's just a lot of fraud and M1CROSOFT.com can raise a lot of money because it's like it's a protection racket. Used to be a protection racket just in 10 top level domains, and now it's protection rackets across hundreds and thousands of domains. And in the end, what's really happening is people don't use their domain names as much. They use links and they, they use Google and search. And so it's just like a lot of these things. It's a pretty useless market where a bunch of people get rich, but don't create much value. They create valuation, but it's not as pretty as NFTs. <laughs> Now, a couple of personal questions before we go. So you trained to go to space. And first of all, I'd love to know, like, why you did that? And like, what was the hard part about doing that? My parents are both scientists. My father in particular is the Dyson and Dyson Sphere. And he worked on a rocket called the Orion, which my brother wrote a book about called Project Orion. So when I was growing up, I actually wasn't that interested in space because I took it for granted. I thought, well, when my dad was growing up, airplanes were special. And, but by the time I grow up, I'm sure space will be boring too. And it turned out not to be the case. Yeah, I'm an explorer and everything I've ever done has really been educating myself about something, whether it's genetics or health or space. And I would genuinely like to retire on Mars, but not <laughs> too soon. So anyway, in 1998, the opportunity came up to be the backup for Charles Simone and train in Russia for six months. And at that point, I was, I was kind of getting interested in health, but I was sort of a dilettante and I had some time to spare. And the true story is my sister, Emily, had a double mastectomy. They had detected cancer, blah, blah, blah. And I wouldn't tell the story if she were not alive and happy today. But about a month after hearing that, we talked, we cried. I was trying to schedule something and I was on the phone and I thought, oh, you know, if I just had a double mastectomy, then I could cancel. What? I realized, Esther, you're, you got to withdraw, take a little time off. Do some adventure or something. Or- yeah, just like if you want a double mastectomy so you can cancel an appointment, something's really wrong. So I decided to do this thing. In 1998, it was very rare for a civilian to go into space, but now it's becoming more common. It's not. Most of those are going to the edge of space. They're not. They're not really going into space. Okay. It will become common and there will be hotels in space. Do you think in the next decade, you will be in space? In the next 20 years. I mean, because I'm still pretty busy. No, no, I'm just saying not forever, but just for a trip up and down or something for a couple of days. Go and retire on Mars because it's perfect for little old ladies, (laughs) one third gravity. It's a great place to retire, but actually going there and coming back, that's a pretty long trip. I also know, and because you and I have known each other for a long time, that I know you're a huge swimmer. You're an avid swimmer. Like, when did that start and how did that start? Two ways. One, whenever I get water up my nose, I think back to Walnut Creek near Berkeley, which is where I learned to swim when I was three or four years old and I'm getting water up my nose all the time. But I started swimming every day in college because my dorm, well, this is actually a famous Adams House swimming pool which did not require you to have a bathing suit. And that was convenient. It was in the building. So I just 
started swimming every morning and basically never stopped. I average about 360 days a year. Oh my gosh. And I am extremely healthy. So it's working. So why not? Exactly. I mean, it's not just physical. It's when I think. It's when I... So it's kind of like for some people, they meditate or something and you're kind of doing that while you swim or something. Right. It's what am I going to talk about in my talk today? Should I really go to Dubai next week or is that a stupid idea? You know, whatever's on my mind, if you spend 50 minutes, at some point it'll get boring rather than troubling. And you've made the decision or resolved the conflict or you're ready to fight the battle. And I remember things that I need to do while I'm in the pool. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? The world is so meta that everything that is considered bad is now considered good. And so <laughs> I think this has to be said carefully, but I'm not a fan of longevity versus healthy living. And I think mortality is useful too. If I were going to live forever, I would worry a lot. You know, my teeth aren't perfect. I've now got a pin in my hip because I cracked my femur. But this stuff doesn't need to last forever. It just needs to last as long as the rest of me. That's very comforting. If I were going to live forever, I would have to learn a lot more languages. I would have time to be perfect. And so I'd be obsessing about being perfect. But as it is, if I have a list of 100 things, if I go down the top 10, that's great. So mortality is freeing in a way? or Yes. So many people are afraid of the unknown. Okay, what is a fate worse than death? And if you encounter that fate, then you can kill yourself. And so you never get worse than death. So death is kind of a finite, it's one end of the spectrum. And so many people kind of live in the middle because they're scared to look at either side. So I find it not comforting, but infinity is very, very big. I like the notion, my job is not to be perfect. It's to hand something on to the next generation to make it better. I love that. That's great. I follow you on Twitter, you dice it on Twitter. Where else can people find you on the internet? Well, you can go to wellville.net, you know, just random stuff. Esther, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for being with us on World of Das. Thank you very much, too. It was a pleasure. And see you at Dialogue, I hope. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.